everyone. Uh, welcome to this uh, second lecture of the uh, Serious Security Seminar. Uh, it's a pleasure to have uh, Dr. Anand Singh uh, uh, to talk to us today. He's the uh, global CISO of uh, Alchemy Technology and uh, has a long, over 25 years uh, experience in security on various industry sectors, financial, retail, healthcare, manufacturing. I just keep reading. Uh, uh, with uh, uh, several very uh, well-known companies like uh, United Health Group, Target, obviously, uh, Alkami, all those like really need security. And most importantly for us, he's a proud Boilermaker. So we are very happy to uh, have uh, uh, Anand back to talk to us about the state of software supply chain security. Thank you so much. Um, everyone, it's my pleasure and honor to speak in this seminar. Um, as uh, it was as is shared in the chat, you can see that I have presented this once before. And so this is my second opportunity after a very long pause. Last time I did this, it was in 2008. Uh, the topic today is very interesting. Uh, and my goal is to lay out the landscape for you uh, in today's conversation. Uh, I was talking about this before, but I like my conversations to be uh, and discussions and presentations to be very conversational. So I would love your questions along the way. Uh, please raise your hand. Please um, uh, please uh, put it in the chat uh, and uh, the moderators will read those questions to me along the way so that I can answer them in context. It's great and uh, it allows me to uh, to kind of just uh, take advantage of that that occasion to get the get my thoughts out there. So so without further ado, uh, the, the first thing that I want to talk about is my background. And, and the reason for that is that I want you to be able to see all the possibilities that uh, your education and cybersecurity or technology opens up for you. Uh, so uh, the uh, as you saw before, I'm currently at Alchemy Technology. Uh, and uh, I will talk about that in a little bit. What does the company do? Uh, I'm going to jump into education at this point. Um, as you can see, I have a PhD from University of Minnesota and uh, a master's from Purdue. I was at Purdue in 96, 97. And uh, prior to coming to Purdue, I was in India and did my uh, bachelor's in computer science and engineering from one of the Indian institutes of technology there. Uh, from a hobbies perspective, which tech guy doesn't love Star Wars? I love it. And I also li like to ride my uh, motorcycle. I am in the North Texas region right now in Dallas area. So there is some uh, amazing country roads out here where you can lose yourself in greenery on both left and right and uh, just ride long winding roads. So I love doing that. Uh, doing technology every day, all the time. Uh, while I love it, it can be exhausting. So that's my respite when I when I do something like that. Uh, I, I'm a regular writer, write in quite a few uh, different places. I'm also board member. Uh, I used to be a board member of Da Vinci Academy. I'm on advisory board of several companies at this point of time. Uh, one of the things that has always been of a special interest to me is to educate kids on safe online behavior. So uh, uh, if you follow me and on social media platforms, you will see that I talk about that topic all the time. I feel that today's generation is growing up without some of the safeguards, without understanding all the risks that uh, being too transparent or open in social media opens up for them. So my goal is to 
teach them so that they don't learn it the hard way. Uh, this is my time at Purdue. Uh, I'm very fond of it. Uh, so what you see in the uh, in this picture up here is the lab we used to be in the Purdue Memorial Union at that point of time, the CS department. Now there is an amazing brand new facility, but that was the that is the old building. And um, you can also see that I used to have a lot of hair at that point of time. Uh, working in security, um, fair warning, working in security may uh, lead to loss of all, a lot of hair on your head, which is my current state at this point of time. Uh, to the right-hand side, this is young uh, graduate house where I spent um, uh, spent uh, my one and a half years at Purdue. And then uh, this, who doesn't know the uh, fountain? Uh, I am intentionally zoomed out in these photos because uh, I didn't want to make my old fashioned style too apparent uh, as I present this uh, in this uh, in this um, seminar today. As I mentioned before, um, and, and you can see uh, again, there's a lot of hair on my head at this point of time. This was, this was my first year as a CISO. Now I'm a 20 year CISO at this point of time. So, um, so a lot of time has passed, but it was fun. Uh, I got out to Purdue and presented there in person. And uh, as I mentioned before, it's an honor to come back here again and uh, talk about uh, the supply chain security as one of the topics that is of interest to you. Uh, a little bit about my career journey. I'm sure as you guys uh, study in Sirius or in other parts of Purdue, as you do uh, your, uh, 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 as you are studying, you are also thinking about what are you going to do in the future? And I'm sure examples help you think about what your future path or what your future uh, career goals may be. So I thought I would do something interesting in today's conversation, talk about what did I do after I graduated from Purdue? So uh, one of the reasons I went to Purdue was uh, that I really wanted to work on uh, some of the deepest course of technology uh, on the OS development, uh, on the uh, vector programming, which is the programming that is used in supercomputing, et cetera. So after I graduated from Purdue, I spent a couple of years at Cray Research as a staff engineer, got to work on something, some very, very interesting stuff. Like for example, you can do uh, weather modeling uh, in the uh, supercomputers, and that's how some of the predictions on what the weather would be uh, in, the, uh, in the future months, years, and weeks. That's how that prediction is done. There is some really strong computing that goes behind it. Uh, similarly, um, uh, the older model of uh, nuclear bomb testing used to be that you actually exploded a real bomb, uh, but supercomputers allowed you to simulate uh, nuclear bombing so that you can uh, do enhancements in the technology uh, uh, for, for how you are developing those bombs without actually having to explode the bombs. Uh, after I was done with Cray Research, I worked with my first startup. I worked with Winchill. Uh, Winchill had a really interesting idea. So I'm sure you guys are aware of like software version control as you do your projects in the classes, et cetera. You must have a need to maintain versions of what you had done before so that you can revisit it in case of debugging or in case you lost some work product or something like that. A similar problem exists in the for major manufacturers. Uh, a golf cart uh, has 10,000 parts. Just imagine how many parts a, uh, a airplane has, like Boeing or Airbus, right? To be able to manage tens of thousands of parts or millions of parts, 
and to be able to version control each one of those, that's a very significant problem. That's the problem that Winchell, uh, Winchell uh, was trying to solve. They created a product that allowed you to manage your version control, your parts. That was a very interesting business problem. They were an amazingly successful company. Uh, they were acquired by a bigger company called Parametric Technology Corporation. Some of you at Purdue may be using one of their products, which is Pro Engineer, which is used for 3D modeling. Uh, they acquired it, and this became a marquee product. I, a very large portion of manufacturers throughout the world use this to manage their parts at this point of time. I also worked at US Bank uh, to help facilitate the mergers and acquisitions of two separate entities. This was a hard responsibility because you can imagine when two companies come together, there is a lot of friction between the way that these two organizations work. So my, my job was to combine the security and architecture organizations of two different companies. First bank was the bigger company. It acquired the smaller company, US Bank, and took the name US Bank. So I, I was handling the merger of their architecture and security functions during that time. As you can see, uh, US Bank was a Fortune 200 company. My next job was a target corporation. I built out their entire security stack for target.com. Uh, and uh, this is a Fortune 50 company. You can see the progression here. My next company was United Health Group, which is a Fortune 10 company. I was the chief information security officer at Optum Insight. And uh, security is really critical to healthcare companies. So um, I was uh, in charge of all of security and quite a bit of business activities because business activities in a company like this drives the uh, what happens uh, from a, uh, a security perspective. So I was able to combine the two together and help the business succeed in a pretty significant way. Uh, all of this time from Venture to United, from Cray to United Health Group, I, I was in Minnesota. That was roughly 20 years worth of time. Uh, then uh, uh, the cold got to be too much at some point. So uh, I figured, let's try something new. Let's Let's try another place. And so, I ended up in uh, Caliber Home Loans in Dallas. Uh, this was uh, uh, another young company, uh, and uh, they, uh, it was a phenomenal opportunity, uh, but culturally, it was not the best fit. So after some time, I moved to Alchemy Technology, which is my current company. Uh, this is the second startup. Uh, I am currently the CISO of Alchemy Technology, and uh, this has been an amazing ride. I've been with the company for five and a half years at this point of time, the company went through multiple rounds of funding from venture capitalists and at, uh, it IPO'd in 2001 and at this point, 2021, and at this point, it's a publicly traded company. So uh, in, the, in the five and a half years of the company, I have seen everything. I've seen amazing growth. I have seen some amazing challenges that needed to be overcome. Uh, I have had the opportunity to build out a security organization in my vision. Uh, and I have also seen uh, the what happens if you don't have great security practices in place and the kind of downfalls that it can create. So um, of all the experiences that I have outlined here, uh, this has been probably the best experience, uh, of course, financially, uh, but along with that kind of professionally and uh, the uh, in, in a way it season my resolve and significantly strengthened me from a leadership perspective, both national and organizational. 
I want to talk, talk briefly about, I think you I, what I want to share in today's conversation is a flavor of how do people come up with the startup ideas? What does it take to build up a new company, right? So uh, I'm going to be sharing many companies and their profiles throughout in the conversation today. Uh, but the quick thing that I wanted to provide was that, uh, what does Alchemy do? So when you go to a bank or a credit union, uh, you have, and you are using their digital uh, uh, mobile app or digital banking. Typically for most mid-sized or some large-sized or even and almost every small-sized bank and credit union, there is an engine that sits behind, which is which belongs to another party. It's, it does not belong to the bank or credit union that does the financial processing, that provides the user experience. So um, Alchemy saw the opportunities in that in that space because mega banks have this advantage that they can have this platform in-house. They can have the large number of software developers in-house and they can create their own platform. That advantage is not there for medium-sized or small banks. And that's the, and that's the opportunity that Alchemy's founders uh, saw in the marketplace. And they said, we are going to build an amazing product that equalizes the playing field that gives credit unions and banks the same opportunity that mega banks have. So they created this platform called Alchemy. Alchemy, of course, uh, is, is like the, the English word. We took a different spelling of it, but it means to, to make something amazing out of ordinary, right? That's what Alchemy means. So that's the name. That's why they chose the name. And so essentially what happens, what Alchemy does is it provides amazing user experience we have the highest rated uh, uh, banking app in the marketplace. When banks and credit unions onboard us, uh, they get to provide digital banking services to their end users. We are a fully cloud-based company. We are a fully SaaS company. Uh, and by onboarding us, banks and credit unions get an opportunity to provide amazing digital banking experiences to their end users. Uh, of course, to my regret, uh, Purdue Employees Federal Credit Union is not a client of Alchemy yet, but uh, hopefully we will remedy that situation sometime in the future. So uh, with that background, uh, I'm going to jump into the uh, software supply chain security and what does it mean, the primary thesis of the conversation today. Uh, so as the 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 for many companies like Alchemy, right? What we are doing is we are partnering with a lot of organizations outside the company. For example, we partner with AWS, which is our primary hosting platform. For example, we partner with companies that may do data processing on our behalf, or we may partner with companies who may be doing money movement or things of that nature that we provide to our end users, right? Um, and Alchemy would be a B2B2C company. We, we sell our services to banks and credit unions, and banks and credit unions uh, consumers use our platform, right? So we are a B2B2C company. Uh, so that's what supply chain security means. Supply chain security means in today's complicated, highly networked world where many solutions may be sitting behind the scenes, uh, uh, even though you get the you you get you you get to buy one platform. How do you ensure the security of all the code from your suppliers that you are injecting in your platform? That's what supply chain security means. As you can see in the highlighted section, the software supply chain security is the act of securing the components, activities, and practices 
involved in the creation and development of software. When we develop our software, we will inject code from, uh, for example, bill pay providers or Zelle, right? Zelle uh, is a, a money, money movement platform or cash app, which I'm sure you guys are using where one person sends money to another person. Uh, platforms like ours are the engine that do the integration of those apps and make it available to the end users. And so we have to make sure that, uh, just using Cash App as an example, we have to make sure that Cash App is secure uh, as a part of that integration process. So that's what we are going to be talking about today. We are going to be talking about software supply chain security and how, how does company like companies like Alchemy or companies like Bank of America or companies like Pfizer, how do they go about security, securing the supply chain of software that they are utilizing within their enterprises? So before I jump into that, right, I mean, just some, some quick data point. Uh, in today's world, 87% of the US enterprises do not have a view of uh, what does supply chain security mean for them? It's a software supply chain tsunami that is affecting us. And they are they have to do something about it. First of all, because supply chain is a highly exploited route, and as I'm going to show you in a moment here. But second of all, uh, it's also because uh, supply chain security is leading to uh, uh, kind of government's attention. So uh, for example, U.S. government is asking all of their suppliers to demonstrate that they have supply chain security practices in place. So it's a business imperative to do something about this at this point of time. Uh, I'm going to shift into the core of the presentation right now. So I'm going to pause here for maybe a few seconds to see if there are any questions before I jump into the next segment of the presentation. Okay. So uh, let me talk about the next segment. These are some of the marquee supply chain attacks that have happened in the recent past. Uh, does, uh, does anyone know what move it is here? Otherwise I can provide some explanation on that. Okay. So, so move it is a file transfer program that many organizations deploy. So for example, Purdue may go and say, uh, my employees at Purdue need to send files to other universities, like or I may need to receive applications for new graduate students through a file transfer system. So uh, I need to deploy a platform for them. That's what Movit does. It's a file transfer platform. Uh, it's like Dropbox or like Box.com if you are familiar with those. Uh, attackers injected code in the uh, Movit's uh, platform. And so basically, every organization that was using Movit that had Movit deployed, the attackers were able to find entry into those organizations through Movit. So hopefully that illustrates the concept of supply chain. Uh, a bank buys Movit, they are using it for file transfer, attackers inject Movit, uh, and that causes uh, an, an issue because the attackers are able to find entry into tens of thousands of organizations that have Movit deployed. I'm going to ask a question and please respond in the chat if you can. Uh, and I will answer this later at the end of this slide. But you can see why Movit is uh, like something like that is really attractive to attackers. I would love to see some explanation for why you think uh, attackers really like this, this route of attack. So, so if you drop your notes in the chat, uh, and, and then I'll provide an answer uh, down the road here. 
the, the second attack I want to talk about is the 3CX supply chain attack. This is an amazingly complex attack. So 3CX is a supplier of audio phone services to, uh, to corporations and universities, etc. So like when you do a call, for example, it is routed through uh, voice over IP and 3CX is a product that uh, provides the ability to do phone calls, etc., to companies and universities and other organizations. What happened was uh, one of the employees at 3CX, they downloaded and installed a buggy software product on their, it was a trading platform for a stock market trading. That trading platform was buggy. One employee at 3CX downloaded the platform on their company system. The, the trading platform was infiltrated by Korean uh, crypto miners. So uh, the Korean crypto miners took advantage of that trading platform on 3CX's employees to inject code in 3CX's code base. And now 3CX's supplier of audio services to tens of thousands of organizations. So attackers had entry into uh, tens of thousands of organizations as a result of uh, uh, conducting this kind of attack. So I'm not going to go through everything in the slide, but you can see the, the, the advantage that people have when they are uh, infiltrating the products like this. Hopefully you guys kind of thought about it as I was explaining this, but the reasons attackers really like supply chain attacks is because it gives them, they don't have to hack organizations or attack organizations one by one. By attacking one product that is deployed in tens of thousands of places, they are able to find entry into tens of thousands of organizations. That's an amazingly powerful attack technique. And that's why this technique is of a very strong attraction to uh, the attackers throughout the world. Uh, I talked about kind of why companies have to worry about this thing now. Of course, like you, you are opening up your platform to security, uh, security considerations and security risks if you are integrating with a lot of suppliers. But also, the U.S. government is now and the executive orders are forcing this uh, company's hands at this point of time. So there is a new NIST document that is being created to address the supply chain security. Uh, V1 has been uh, created already, uh, and, uh, the, and, and uh, the administration has issued an executive order that any supplier to U.S. government needs to demonstrate that they are being diligent about their supply chain security practices. So it is an amazing opportunity for any companies thinking about creating new products in this space to manage supply chain security because... There is a pent-up demand for this in the marketplace at this point of time uh, without having a lot of uh, with, uh, people who can solve this problem. So startups are stampeding into this space as a result of that. Uh, companies want to buy products to manage supply chain security. There is not a standard product in the market for that right now. So startups are thinking about how can I solve this problem? Because people are going to buy my products. So there are there is many products. Uh, companies like Riscosity is a good example. The founder and the CEO of Riscosity is a good friend of mine. Uh, so the companies are stampeding in this, into this space because 
It's a massive problem that needs to be solved. It's a tremendous business opportunity and solving this problem will help tens of thousands of organizations. No, we should not pack up and go home. I think we need to figure out how to solve this problem. So in the next few slides, I'm gonna be talking about the approaches to solve this problem. So there, there are going to, so these are the four approaches to solving this problem. Uh, you have to do, you have to have a good program in place, meaning that supply chain security is a horizontal discipline. What does that horizontal discipline mean? Horizontal means like it is touching many different parts of the organization. Obviously, it will touch the cybersecurity part of the organization, but it will also touch the uh, networking part of the organization. It also touch the, touches the product development part of the organization. So supply chain security is a horizontal discipline. It needs to be created like a program. It needs to be treated like a program. And uh, there need to be a lot of stakeholders across the organization uh, who can uh, who can drive it with you. You, As a security stakeholder, uh, you cannot be driving it uh, yourself only because then it's the recipe for failure. It's the discipline that touches many part of the organization. Uh, I am reading the uh, some of the uh, comments in the chat and I love it because you guys were absolutely on point about why something like this is a, uh, is a popular uh, attack technique. Uh, then uh, I want to talk about architecture side of it. Uh, the architecture side of it is that uh, you need to conduct a gap analysis. Cloud security alliance reference architecture is a good way, for example, to conduct your gap analysis to identify what are the things, what are the new products that you can deploy in your organization to secure your organization. Once again, there are dedicated supply chain products, security products at this point of time. Riscosity is a good example of that. So when you do a gap analysis, you are able to identify those gaps, and you are able to uh, you are able to uh, address those gaps. Uh, next topic, I'm going to talk in a lot of detail about, but SBOM, I'm going to just very briefly talk about this. SBOM is, stands for uh, Software Bill of Materials. What that means is, you know where software in your company is coming from. You have to know this. A lot of open source libraries, this that. Uh, they may have bugs or defects or injected vulnerabilities too. If you don't know, you are in trouble. So SBOM, just like in parts, you know where your parts are coming from. But as a manufacturer, in software, when you are building a product, you have to know where your software is coming from. When you're using your libraries, you have to ensure that they are, uh, they are, they are safe, right? TPRM stands for third-party risk management. TPDO stands for third-party data observability. Uh, and then obviously shift left, meaning that you do security early on rather than later the breaks. And lastly, you have to evolve your threat intel playbooks. When an attack happens, you have to react to that attack. You have to make things happen in your organization. For example, for the customers of Moveit, uh, I'm sure they have to do a lot of things to manage the implications of the Moveit attack. So uh, that's what uh, that's what they ended up doing. Um, so you will do things like this. You have to know who is the owner of move it relationship in your organization you have to know like you have to reach out to move it and get updates from them on what they are doing for their application you have to understand which part of move it is impacted because move it has a many products right so that's why you have to evolve your threat intel playbooks as soon as move it uh, announcement happens you have to know about it and you go into this reaction mode within your organization to identify what is the footprint of move it in my company etc uh, software bill of materials, as I said, software bill of materials means what 
what are all the software components that make up your product? So you may have open source controls, for example. You may have different suppliers, different authors, uh, etc. If you understand these soft software block materials, you can run a platform to scan the scan the uh, software bill of materials and identify and by the way i'm sure i hope everyone understands what bill of materials is but very simply bill of materials in manufacturing space means all the parts that make a product that's the bill of materials for that product uh, for software what that means is all the software components that make your software product that's what bill of material means so um so if you understand the all the components that make your software product you can run scans on that software uh, in yours, uh, for all the components and identify if there are any vulnerabilities in those components. You can also run a patching regime, meaning that, like as you know, right, patches get released almost on a weekly basis at this point of time. If you understand your software bill of materials, you know what needs to be patched in your product. Uh, and how you can keep your product safe and secure. So that's why understanding software bill of materials is really important. I want to talk briefly about like, and again, I don't want you to worry about, there's a lot of information on this slide. I don't want you to worry about all of this information in this slide. There's only a small portion of it that I want to talk about. Uh, this is a good comprehensive chart, so I like to keep it there, but the component that I'm going to talk about is this, right? When you bring, this is, up to this point, we have talked about the technology pieces. We talked about software, bill of materials, and running scans on it. That's a technology piece, right? Now we are going to talk about the process piece. Third-party risk management is a process framework. What that means is that when new third parties, you establish relationships with new third parties. For example, you establish relationship with Zelle or Cash App as an example. You have, to, you have to do a lot of diligence as a part of establishing that relationship. Some of the things that you should look for as a part of establishing that relationship is, is Cash App developing a secure product? Do they have good security practices in place? So most large organizations will have a sub-organization that is doing activities like this. They are, they are talking with these third parties prior to relationship being getting cemented, and they're asking these third parties uh, do you have a uh, PCI compliance? Do you have FedRAMP compliance? Uh, did you do, uh, do you have a SOC 2 type 2 that we can take a look at it? What are your policies? Are you patching on a regular basis or not? What is your, what does your vulnerability management program look like, etc.? Where is your risk at registered? Legal is also an important part of this consideration because you can do all the diligence but because you are looking from outside, you may not truly understand the weaknesses of an organization. So legal is important part of this because you also want to embed some practices in your contract. Uh, like, for example, you may want to hold your suppliers liable if they become a cause of uh, intrusion into your organization. For example, you may obligate through contract that you need to have a cybersecurity policy of several million dollars so that you can compensate us if we suffer, suffer damage as a result of you, things of that nature. So those are the only key pieces that I wanted to highlight in this slide. Don't worry about the eye chart here. That's the really important thing to do. Okay, this is another eye chart and this is another easy explanation. I'm gonna make it really easy for you. 
the eye chart is important because this is the sample of just one organization that and my my friend Anirban address Cosity shared this chart with me. Uh, but you can, this is the sample of one organization. In one organization, they had pretty close to 70, 80 software as a service providers in that organization. Can you imagine having 70, 80 software as a service providers? And the, the, the bad news is that most of these guys are not running on your infrastructure because they are software as a service. They are running on their, their own infrastructure and they are being accessed through a browser for the services that they are providing. So this is, this is the landscape. Obviously, you will do all of your due diligence as a part of your third-party risk management process. But as I said before, you are, you, when you are conducting that process, you are looking from the outside. You don't have a lot of insight into what is actually happening in the inside. When someone is selling something, they are presenting their best view. They're not presenting the complexities of their system as a result of that. So um, my so 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 one of the ways to solve this problem is to enable visibility on, of what is happening. It's called that that visibility is called observability. So for example, Datadog is an observability platform. Datadog provides you insight into what is happening on the infrastructure. So in the earlier part of the conversation, I mentioned, right? I mean, these problems create opportunities for people who are who are trying to create a startup or trying to solve these problems, right? Because these are, if you understand a problem really well, you can provide a solution to the market that will sell really well. So uh, Anirban saw this opportunity in the market to say, a, a typical company is going to have like 70, 80 SaaS products. A lot of data is flowing from these 70, 80 SaaS products to the partners that are outside the company. And no one is looking at what data is going back and forth as a result of this. A intruder, uh, an attacker, can exploit that data exchange, write that data pipe to exfiltrate data out of the organization. So that's what uh, he ended up building, a startup around this. There's many opportunities in this, by the way. So, so essentially, uh, they implemented a visibility uh, into all the data exchange that is happening with these third parties. And it is called third-party data observability. So basically, uh, uh, as a result of that platform, you are able to understand what is happening within all of these data pipes between an organization and all of their suppliers. Because they understand what is happening in all of this data pipes, that's visible to you. That's why it is observability. Because of that observability, you are able to understand whether the data flow is in compliance with your agreements or not, whether there is something malicious that is happening. That visibility is amazingly powerful. And so coming back full circle now, why I'm talking in detail about this is not just because it solves a supply chain problem, but also because as you do your studies at Purdue, as you look at all the complex problems that you encounter, just remember that all of those problems are an, are an opportunity. The opportunity is to understand that problem to such a degree of detail that uh, you, you can perhaps create a product to solve that problem. And if you create a product to solve that problem, uh, you will, uh, and, and there's demand in the market for that, you can, you can, you can uh, benefit uh, pretty substantially from that, right? So, 
Uh, this is kind of another view. How how does the the that platform work? So basically, there is a DNS proxy that sits in the middle of the organization's production VPC. VPC is virtual private cloud. It's the Amazon's term for that. So basically, the because it is sitting in the middle as a DNS proxy, it has the ability to monitor all the traffic flow from uh, the VPC uh, to the third-party services. So. Uh, this is not my diagram, by the way. This is their diagram, but it flowed nicely into the presentation, so I wanted to include that in the presentation. But you can see how, the, the, in a clever way, by using this DNS proxy, they're able to get observability of the, all the data exchange and uh, create metrics and reports and alerts and uh, visibility into any malicious traffic as a result of that. The last piece of the presentation of the of the of the component is the shift left, right? Uh, the the shift left means like the this is the standard software engineering principle, right? Any one of you, uh, software engineering is the core course requirement in most computer science departments and at Purdue too. So I'm sure you know this chart from uh, the software engineering book. The chart is. The sooner you solve a problem, the less expensive it is. If you solve a problem in the development stages, and I'm forgetting right now, so I'm sure one of you guys remember, it has been a long time for me. But if you solve a problem in the development stages, it's much less expensive than if you solve a problem after the product has been deployed already. I am forgetting the factor by which it is much less expensive, but it's like either hundreds or thousands of times more expensive to fix problems. Uh, in a product in production versus trying to fix a problem in development stages itself. So that's what shift left means. Shift left means do security as early as possible uh, so that you can solve the problems as early as possible. Uh, by the way, I would love it if one of you guys can refresh my memory. How much? How many times more expensive it is to solve a problem in the end game than kind of in the development itself? So if you want to share your answers in the chat, I would love to see it. Uh, but coming back to this, um, the uh, shift left means you solve a problem as early as possible because solving problem late is very expensive. That's what shift left means. I like to say that if you like, if you start secure, you don't have to become secure. Um, and I think the last secure is uh, uh, vanished, but that's the idea here. If you start secure, you don't have to become secure. Becoming secure is much more expensive than starting secure. So uh, now, now what, what does this mean is like the, the shift left means you are shifting to a more sec proactive security posture. Believe it or not, you can actually drive security even in the planning process. For example, in the planning process, you can inject uh, something like uh, do um, in, in implement MFA for the login prompt, right? That's being secure, solves the problem. Now uh, you can be secure in the code. Nowadays, there are scanners that can actually scan the code while you're writing the code. So they will tell you if you injected a security vulnerability in your code unknowingly. Uh, sometimes people do that knowingly, of course. But if you injected a vulnerability in your code, if you wrote a vulnerability in your code unknowingly, then there are scanners that run as you are writing the code and they will tell you, here's a problem. Here is a likely problem. They cannot say it with 100% confidence, but they will tell you, here is a likely problem. Uh, fix it now. 
So you can see the power of that, right? So that's what shift means. Solve the problems as early as possible. Uh, why shift left? I mean, it's obvious, but obviously you can do faster delivery. You have better security posture. As I mentioned, your costs are a lot less. Uh, your integration is much better. Uh, this thing is really important. Your developers become much more knowledgeable about security. I like to say in my company is that if security is just security team's responsibility, then I have failed already and my team has failed already. Security team is every single individual, should be every single individual's responsibility in the entire company. If it is not, then there's a problem. So one of the aspects of that is that application security should be understood by my developers too, not just by application security engineers. And so that's why when you do shift left, it also improves dev security knowledge because if if a, if something is telling you that you are introducing a vulnerability in your code at the time of writing the code there is some education and teaching that is happening right in the moment there right uh, i the the next thing i want to talk about is like what are some of the shift left top 10 i'm looking at the time because i want to make sure i give enough time for q a in the end uh, but the shift left top 10 is uh, abide by security policies and standards. That's, that's obviously really important, the governance aspect of it. A lot of automation. I talked about some pieces of automation already. Like, for example, you can automate the scan of the code at the time of writing of the code. That's amazingly powerful. There is one more aspect of automation that is really powerful too, which is, which is deduplication. Another company, another software company, is actually, uh, it's called Armor Code. Armor Code is coming out of Silicon Valley. And another friend of mine, uh, Nikhil, is a founder of Armor Code. So what Armor Code does is they found another problem that they wanted to solve. Most companies will have like five or six different platforms for a security application security scan. And each of these platforms will develop their own vulnerabilities. Now, what is the problem if like five platforms are scanning your platform for vulnerabilities? There will be a lot of duplication across all of these. So Nikhil saw this as an opportunity and said, okay, I like I can go and build a product on this that will simplify the life of many companies. And so they, that's how they built Armor Code and Armor Code is, is pretty successful at this point of time. But so yeah, coming back to the point that I'm trying to make here, when you do like the automation for deduplication is really important because you don't want to cause a lot of friction by presenting the same, same issues again and again. And when you have hundreds, it's a guarantee that if you don't have a deduplication process in place, uh, that you are going to be talking about the same issues again and again and wasting a lot of time. And then infrastructure as a code, right? I mean, uh, the um, that that's kind of like real, uh, the DevSecOps model. In the DevSecOps model, infrastructure as a code is, is, is a core piece of that because security is getting all the way into like deployment of infrastructure too. When you do deploy uh, infrastructure in, in cloud, for example, you're not actually doing anything on the actual platform itself. You are writing code that is deploying your infrastructure. So, so being able to leverage infrastructure as a code kind of helps and, and making sure that your infrastructure as a code is secure drives the DevSecOps model, which is early security and everyone has a responsibility for security. 
Uh, this is my last slide, and then I'm going to open up the floor for, and I'm going to review the questions, and hopefully someone can read the questions for me. But um, uh, looking ahead, I want to. This is my prediction of what the future will look like. So my number one, and I saw this in the chat too. So thank you for those guys who responded with your comments, Solomon and other, Rahul and others. Um, we are going to see increased supply chain attacks at this point of time because a supply chain is a one-to-many route. You compromise one product that gets deployed in large number of enterprises, uh, you have access to a very large number of enterprises. Most attackers are lazy, uh, meaning that they are like, they're not going to compromise each organization one by one. That's too much work. Why not be smart and compromise a product that gets deployed everywhere and then infiltrate thousands of organizations as a result of that? So my prediction is supply chain attacks will are only going to accelerate and diversify. For those of you who are doing research, who may have research objectives, maybe thinking about the thesis uh, topic, et cetera, this might be a great topic to dive into to see if you can, you can compartmentalize a problem that you can solve as a result of your thesis or your research. The second thing that, that will happen is that platform owners will boost their defenses, right? So like I talked about the four tiers of a good supply chain security strategy earlier in the call, but platform owners are going to boost their defenses they are going to do malicious package detection. They are going to integrate third-party package scanners. I'm sure many of you guys use GitHub or GitLab or something of that nature uh, and Bitbucket, whatever. And all of these have like now they can provide third-party scanners and you can take advantage of third-party scanners to scan the code that gets in. Uh, you can do IP address, IP range locks for publishing so that people, I, I want to make sure people understand this because this is a really important point. But when you publish your code, you can identify the IP ranges in GitHub, for example, you can identify the IP ranges that can change the code or uh, publish the code. So uh, by like, for example, for your GitHub repo, you may be able to lock it down to, to your organization's IP address range, range only. So people outside of your organization coming out from like an attacker coming from a different country or from a different IP address range, they won't have the rights to publish it. And this is a, this is a simple but incredibly powerful technique. And then obviously integrated security checks. My prediction also is that third-party data observability, being able to understand what is the, uh, what is the data base flow between your organization and external parties, that's amazingly important. You saw the DNS proxy model that I described before. So my prediction is that the third-party data observability will gain a lot of traction. Uh, supply chain automation will advance, uh, meaning that we will see a lot of automation, a lot of integrated checks. We already talked about DevOps model uh, automation, meaning that you are scanning early and often you are cleaning the code as you write the code, et cetera. And then my last prediction is that most companies will be forced to do something about this because otherwise they will not be able to conduct business and uh, at least the government business and government business has a lot of money in it. So in the end, uh, money drives what happens. And my prediction is that supply chain security will force a lot of organizations to start, uh, start to do something about it. 
Uh, so that was my presentation. Um, I would love to take on some questions at this point. Um, so uh, I'm going to jump into the uh, chat and questions. And then I'm going to start talking about it. Okay. So uh, the first question that I see is from, um, from Drew. So Drew... Um, my tenure at Target was from 2005 to 2010. Target security breach. I have some very interesting take on it. So I love this question. Uh, but Target security breach happened three years after I left Target. It happened in 2013. I'm sure you guys know how Target security breach happened. It happened because when you go to a Target store, you can see that there is heating and cooling in the, uh, in the freezers that have food products in them. When heating and cooling happens, uh, all of that heating and cooling is extremely expensive for uh, retail companies like Target. So they outsource it to a third party. The third party that was doing heating and cooling management for Target, they had a really simple default password for their systems. The attackers exploited that pathway into Target's core systems. That's how Target attack happened. Uh, it was unrelated to target.com infrastructure that I built out. Target.com still remains unreached. So I'm proud of the security work that we have done at, at that point of time. Target.com is completely independently operated. Uh, but in addition to that, it happened three years after I had left Target already. The breach happened in 2013 and I was out of Target in 2010. Uh, moving on to the second question, what kind of injection was performed on MoveIt? Uh, the exact details have, have not been released in the public domain yet, so I cannot venture a guess on it, but uh, my sense, the typical route, I can explain how typically something like this happens, right? I explained the 3CX scenario where someone down, an employee downloaded a product on their company system that was, uh, that had a security vulnerability in it that the North Korean attackers exploited. So typically there are two routes of how bugs are, well, maybe three routes, sorry, how bugs are implanted in these systems. The first route is you fish an employee in that company, you get access to that employee systems and you implant vulnerability in the product code base, uh, presumably that employee is a developer. So that's, that's the first route. Phishing is the easiest, most commonly exploited technique in the industry. The second route is someone got access to the GitHub repo of that because it was not, uh, uh, like I told you before, right? The publishing rights can be limited to IP address range, but not everyone does it. So someone got access to the, and, and honestly, if you go to GitHub and you do a scan, you will see ten tens of thousands of repos that are open to public for whatever reason. Maybe the companies don't know it, or maybe they intentionally left it public or whatever, but people can implant bugs in those repos uh, or vulnerabilities in those repos that are open to the public. Now, someone publishes those repos, and now uh, everyone has that vulnerability in their systems, right? That's the second route. The third route is what happened in the 3CX case where a buggy product was deployed on the employee systems. That's why most companies don't, most mature security companies don't allow the, uh, uh, allow the deployment of non-company software on company systems to prevent that possibility. Uh, I want to look at Solomon's questions next. Um, uh, the first question is, what standards are important for securing an organization? 
So uh, Solomon, I would say that typically NIST is, is kind of almost a standard across the board. So NIST has a tremendous amount of respect and a lot of guidance. If you are in the cloud space, take a look at cloud security alliances requirements. Those are the two fundamentals that I would recommend. Uh, I am a big fan of NIST and I'm a big fan of CSA. Um, we, uh, CSA can also be used for gap analysis, as I mentioned before. Uh, NIST is in public domain because it's a government organization. You can use their, I actually use some of their uh, information and the thesis that I wrote and I got the rights from them. So with NIST, uh, use of their materials is open to public and in public domain because it's a government organization. Cloud security alliance is private, so they still expose a lot of information, but some of the most important things may be hidden from public view. They are available only to the paying members. Uh, the second question is, which standards are required by the government? I would say NIST again. Uh, in addition to NIST, I would also say look into FedRAMP. Uh, it spells exactly like it sounds like, F-E-D-R-A-M-P. FedRAMP is required for the, the most secure organizations of the country. And then lastly, um, how, do, how, how often do you interface with DHS and uh, use Cybercom? Um, I cannot disclose this information in a public forum, so my apologies for that, but I hope you understand. Uh, but there is some interfacing with some of these government entities. Uh, I'm seeing a question number four from Solomon here. Um, Uh, the question is about which government organizations were encouraged to find a way to map the services and devices on the network. I think there are a lot of products in the marketplace. I think in 2009, 2010, this was a new space. But at this point of time, there are a lot of products in the marketplace that actually can tell you what is on your systems, etc. For example, Jupyter One is one such product. Uh, there is there is many products like that. So I think it's mostly a solved problem. And at this point of time. Uh, or, and there are many companies who are doing work in this space. So I would say that probably this is not something that requires deep amount of research or collaboration or initiative around this anymore. It's, it's probably more of a legacy topic at this point of time. Um, moving on, uh, I, I want to look at a question from Jen. How do you deal with problems of lack of visibility in software supply, supply chain security? So, um, yeah, so as I mentioned before, right? You have your cloud setup, you have your cloud VPC, virtual private cloud, and you have your third-party supplier, right? These are your two blobs, right? You want a bit, and, and normally these two blobs are bridged with a pipes between the two blobs. These pipes is where the data exchange is happening. So what you can do is you can build a DNS proxy between the two blobs to look at the data flow between the enterprise and these third parties. So that's why the software supply chain security is... Uh, is, is able to take care of uh, introduce visibility. So that's what uh, I mentioned before, Anirban, uh, Riscosity, look them up on the website after you are done here. But Anirban from Riscosity and, and his company, that's what they have done. They built the DNS proxy, they have visibility to the traffic. They have a lot of proprietary algorithms that they are using to analyze all of this traffic flow. Um, looking at the next question here, um, how do you maintain continuous monitoring across multiple organizations? Uh, so I think, yeah, so there, there are some best practices, Nicholas. Uh, there are organizations that act as a conduit between, uh, between all of these, like there are domain-specific organizations. So for example, FS, ISAC is a finance domain-specific organization. 
all the companies that participate in FSI SAC agree to share information with each other on the threats that they are seeing. Uh, similarly, you can also feed your reports into DHS. This was the question that was one of the questions that was asked before. And DHS can, pub uh, can publicize that to all the parties who sub subscribe to DHS. So there are some ways to pull together information at this point of time. Uh, Rahul uh, asks, what are the kind of forensic tools that can be used to collect evidence for supply chain security attacks? Uh, and then are there AI ML models for that? So number one, uh, the tools are the same, like what I described before, you need you develop visibility and because you develop visibility, you have, you have the ability to do four and six investigations on the exchange. Uh, so that's an easy tool. Your traditional tool portfolio can provide a lot of insight too, such as uh, firewalls, such as data loss prevention technologies, et cetera. Yes, AI ML uh, is a uh, is is in feverish adoption in this space right now. Uh, AI ML obviously can emulate a lot of human intelligence in analyzing all of this traffic. Uh, there is nothing in very advanced stages at this point of time, but I know that many companies are at the cusp of releasing supply chain security features relying on AI ML. Um, with increasing remote work, how does IP range locking work? So there's two ways in which IP uh, you can do IP range locking. You can either force people to come in through a VPN or you can do SD-WAN type of architecture where you know what your IP, uh, your, where your IP address ranges become very predictable. Uh, Ishan, take a look at Zscaler and Cloudflare and the SD-WAN architecture and uh, Secure Service Edge and the uh, SASE, is, uh, uh, SASE architecture, and I think you will see how you can predict, a, uh, you do a predictable IP address range as a result of that. You don't want any IP address to be publishing code repos um, uh, from in GitHub. As I mentioned before, you want to lock it down. And then my last question here, and looks like I will be done on time, but um, uh, actually second last question, so I'm sorry. So I may have to miss the last question. But is it generally less resource intensive to design a secure services? Yes, um, the uh, secure serverless architecture would be less resource intensive, in, intensive, will allow you for a lot of automation. Obviously, you are losing a lot of control in the process as well, but in general, that's a correct statement. I think I'm done with... Um, all the questions at this point, uh, but I did want to say in closing, guys, uh, I loved all the questions, by the way, and hopefully this session was informative to you because not only did I want to present on a topic, I also wanted to energize your thinking on what are the problems, real world problems that you can focus your energies on. How can you graduate out of Purdue or, or continue to work within Purdue? How can you develop kind of something uh, like more startup thinking, entrepreneurial mindset. That was one of the goals of the presentation today. And hopefully you guys got some ideas and energy out of the discussion today. Thank you so much for being an amazing audience. Oh, great, great. Thank you very much, Dr. Singh. This is a very great talk um, and great questions from our audience. Really appreciate it. Uh, so yeah, we, uh, we'll we have this uh, talk up um, in a couple of days. It'll be on our website and on YouTube. Uh, 
So we'll just add it to our archives. But uh, thanks, thanks again. Really appreciate it. And uh, you know, definitely let us know when you're going to be when you're going to be here on campus. Uh, we'll, we'd love to have you here. Absolutely. Thank you, Mike. Nice talking. Right. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye.